Well, I like that commercial. Got it. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is the 16th of December 2021. My name is Maria F., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-host today is Sue L. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, please contact either the either myself or the co-host, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. <clears throat> and please note that the speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session that follows will not be recorded. We will post a link to the previous recordings in the chat function and also a link for the seventh tradition. We also ask that you keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study and do turn off your video if you're exercising, if you're eating or if you need to step away from the screen for any reason at all, please do disable your video because it could be good distracting for other members. So we will now turn the meeting over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. Thank you so much for helping us get started today. I appreciate your service. Before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that registration is open for the OA birthday. And the OA birthday is one heck of a convention, and it is on Zoom once again this year. The OA birthday, everybody knows that, the, that OA was formed on January 19th, 1960. So the OA birthday is always in January and always emanates from Los Angeles. It will take place on the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th of January. Registration is open and it is $30. It, it, when I consider all the money that I spent uh, on food that was killing me, it's a, just incredible how cheap $30 is. There's going to be a big book workshop. There's going to be a sober eating workshop. There's going to be step workshops, tradition workshops. There's going to be lots and lots of specialty meetings. Uh, I think there's going to be a sponsor meet and greet online. There's usually some stuff for the vision people. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work online, but I know Susan will figure it out. And it's just an amazing, amazing convention. To register for the OA birthday, simply go to Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous. Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous will bring you to their homepage or go to oabirthday.com. Either way, and you'll see a, a thing for registration. Click on that, register. If you wanna do service, you can sign up to do service. Uh, it's just it's just a fabulous convention. I recommend it highly. And hopefully, if God is really good to us next year, we'll all get together and we'll all be in LA next year. And we can all um, do fellowship in the lobby of the Los Angeles Hilton like we always do. And I'm praying for that day we, we, when we can all be together and we can all just enjoy each other. But for right now, we've got Zoom and they do an amazing, amazing job. So please register for this magical convention. Okay. Um, oh, just to, to do a little housekeeping. Next sun, next Saturday is Christmas Day. Yes, I will be doing this. The reason I'm going to be doing this on Christmas Day is I, I don't want to really upset the continuity. And 
if you are a Christmas celebrant and you cannot make it next Saturday, we will, as always, we will record this and you can listen to it on the recording. So we're going to do it next Saturday. We're going to do it New Year's Day. So please uh, understand that if you are a person that does celebrate those holidays, you can always, always, always access that on the recording. So I hope that you will. Okay. We are in the foreword to the second edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're gonna be getting into some history this morning and hopefully we'll make this book come alive for you as best we can. We are on page XVII, which is 17 in Roman numerals, XVII. And we're going to start with the paragraph, hence the two men set. And I'll give you a second to get there. XVII, hence the two men set to work. While we're waiting for you guys to get there, I'm just going to remind you the, who these two guys are. So we're going to backtrack just a little bit and sort of give us a running start into today. Bill Wilson is in New York in. March of 1935, and he has been complaining to Lois that he is trying to sober these guys up. And by these guys, we mean guys from the bars, guys from the Bowery, guys from the gutter, what have you, and nobody is getting sober. He himself has been sober since December the 14th, 1934. And he is, it is now late March, early April, 1935. And Lois and him are going to go to an Oxford group meeting that night. Lois has just come home from work and she's getting changed. She wants to go, but she wants to get out of her work stuff. And Bill is saying to her, hurry up, we're going to be late. And she throws a shoe at, it, at him and hits him. She hit him with a shoe. She had never done anything like that before, but she was very frustrated. And the reasons that she was frustrated with him was she was very hurt that he is now sober and it doesn't really include her, number one. Number two, it wasn't what she had bargained for. She thought that their life would be very different. In other words, perfect and blissful and wonderful with birds singing and fish jumping out of the water and you know sky writing and all this other stuff. So here he is sober since December. It's now late March, early April. And it's not quite what she bargained for. So she got a little aggravated with him. And and he says to her, you know, I'm working my tail off here trying to get these guys sober. Nobody's getting sober for the love of God. What's going on here? And she turns to him and she changes the history of the world when she says to him, but you're staying sober, but you're staying sober. And with that very simple statement of your staying sober, she changed the world because he realized that it's not about who's getting sober. It's about him getting sober. And a lot of times I run into people and I didn't, hadn't planned on talking about sponsorship this morning. 
I run into people, they're scared to sponsor because she, we are perfectionists by our nature. We are perfectionists as addicts. Bill Wilson said at the end of his life, we are immature, sensitive rebels, but we are also perfectionists. And how do we get to be perfectionists? Well, the internal world that we live in is very uncomfortable. The internal world that we live in is reeks of fear and anger and character defects, and it putrefies over time because of the disease. And we look at the world around us and we see people and they are imposing and we are scared of them, but they seem more together than we. And so we try to arrange our external in a perfect order in hopes that if I can just tell this guy to stand over there and that gal to stand over there and this guy to hit this note and that guy to stop picking his nose, that everything will be perfect. And there's no such thing. And we are perfectionists by our nature. And so what happens is we want to be the perfect sponsors. Forget about being the perfect sponsor. It's not about who recovers. It's about our recovery. All we need to do as sponsors is work out of the book and the book will do the work. The book will do the work. 90%, 99%, not 99%, 100% of the people that I have sponsored helped me stay abstinent. Whether or not they are, they are abstinent or not is not my business. So we have to work with the willing. We have to not be perfect sponsors. 100% of the time when I sponsor, I end up staying out of the food because as Clancy Immislin teaches us, Clancy is one of my favorite AA speakers. I love him to death. Too bad he's, not, he's no longer with us. Clancy said, you don't learn this program by absorbing spiritual information. You get this program by transmitting spiritual information. Okay, so Bill Wilson is now talking to Lois. And what else does he does Lois say to him? Why don't you go to Dr. Silkworth? You don't leave for Akron for a number of days. Why don't you go to Dr. Silkworth and talk to him and see if he has some kind of idea that would make what you're doing more effective? He goes to Silkworth before he leaves for Akron and Silkworth says to him, Bill, I've heard about some of these shenanigans that you're pulling out there. You're preaching to these drunks. I didn't used to spit when I talked until I got old. I don't know what happened to me, but anyway, uh, you're preaching to these drunks from some spiritual hilltop and you're talking to them about God and you're talking to them about your spiritual experience. Stop doing that. Do what I told you. Tell them about the physical allergy. Tell them about the twist of the mind that compels you to drink in search of relief from the intenable pain of not eating. Tell them that. And he's going to go to Akron in April of 35. And on May the 12th, 1935, at the Cyberling Gatehouse in Akron, Ohio, he will meet Bob Smith, Dr. Bob, and AA will get its running start. So we've been talking about these two men. Let's go to page XVII. 
Hence, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. And this is Bill Dotson. Bill Dotson was a Kentucky guy. He was a lawyer. He was a city councilman. And he is the man on the bed. He is the man on the bed in that very, very famous picture of Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob going to see the man on the bed. And you can see him, he's sitting there in his undershirt and Bill and Bob are talking to him and they're saying to him what happened to them. They're telling him their story and so on and so forth. And he will recover. He will die in 1954, April of 54, just a month before I was born. He will die with 19 years of solid sobriety. And he will become a rampart of recovery. He will become a stalwart member of the earliest AA groups in Akron, Ohio, the King's uh, school group, the group that met at, at T. Henry uh, and Clarice Williams's home, Dr. Bob's home, he will become a stalwart member of that group, and he will never drink again throughout the rest of his life. And his name again was Bill Dotson. And if you want to read his story, it's in the back of the book. It's AA number three, and that's Bill. Okay, this work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. You know, all groups of AA or OA or whatever, they have numbers. This is group number like 19372 or whatever it is. And the group in Akron, that meets in, in, in that hospital there that I've been to, it's on Dr. Bob Way. You know how they have nicknames for the streets? Well, in Akron, Ohio, it'll take your breath away. If you go to Dr. Bob's house and you're not in tears, there is something wrong with you emotionally. I was... I, I was so, the tears were running down my face. You go in there and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but you go into the house and you just feel it. You come into the living room and there's Susan. Susan was his adopted daughter. There's her typewriter on the table and she needed to practice typing. So her father, he arranged it so that she could type the stories of the people from Akron on her typewriter. And that's how she got practice typing. But you walk in upstairs to these rooms and you hear or you see this is where the, the guys were brought to get sober. And if that doesn't move you, you must have died five years ago. I don't know what else to tell you because it's just so moving. If these walls could only talk, but if you listen carefully and you just stand there and you take it in, the walls will talk to you. You'll feel the magic. And then when you go through Dr. Bob's house, it's in Akron, Ohio, 855 Ardmore Street. You go through the house and you see how modest and small the house is. And then you read in the book about all the people that they let live there. You know, that's incredible. I was married for 17 and a half years. 
I don't know that my wife would have said yes or no, I couldn't tell you, but I would have had a hard time convincing her, this guy's gonna stay here and it ended up to be a year and this guy's gonna stay here and it ended up, you know, God knows what. And this little tiny kitchen, this little tiny kitchen, and you see how small the house really is. And you walk in there, why am I talking about this? I hadn't planned on this, but anyway, I'm gonna just go with it. You know, the back airing porch where he talks about the bootlegger leaving them, you go out there and you see it and you see you know the basement where the tile is cracked where he used to store his little bottles of booze and stuff like that it's really really insanely it's just it's exciting it's moving it's emotional and it's important before god closes your eyes go to akron ohio walk the path Go to the cemetery where Dr. Bob is buried. Very famous picture of Bill Wilson standing along the tombstone for Bob Smith on the day of the funeral. And you can go to the Cyberlink Gatehouse. I wouldn't necessarily recommend going to the Mayflower. It's kind of a sketchy neighborhood now. I wouldn't recommend going to the Mayflower Hotel. But if you want to go, go. But the bottom line is you get a chance to see the hospital. And we went to the hospital. And there is a meeting of AA there every day at that hospital. And it's on, it's, there's a regular street name, but you know how they do the nicknames. It says Dr. Bob Way. Um, it's really quite, kind of moving. And you can go in and you can see pictures of Sister Ignatia and you can see pictures. You can go into the chapel and you can see pictures of these guys when they were first starting out. It's just incredible. And then when you think about everything you experience at the Smith house, there's a house next door that the AA Foundation has purchased. You can get little cups that say, I had a drink at Dr. Bob's house. It's a coffee cup. I drank at Dr. Bob's or you, I, I bought a bunch of t-shirts, not this one. This is a duck's t-shirt. I bought a bunch of Chazerai there. Uh, I've got uh, uh, t-shirts that say Dr. Bob's and stuff. And also, I don't know why I'm on my travel agent soapbox this morning. The next time we have the convention for vision in Newark, Go to Stepping Stones, where Bill and Lois lived out their life. Go to Stepping Stones. Go through the house. See his violin. See her piano. Walk where they lived. Look at their bed. Look at where Lois started Al-Anon. Look at where her and Ann Bingham started. You can see Lois Wilson's desk. If that doesn't get you crying, then you died 10 years ago. I don't know what to tell you, but the courage that it took these people to bring this message to the world, how God chose them, why God chose them, I couldn't tell you. But when they got to heaven, I'm certain that God embraced Lois and embraced Bill and said to each and each of them, Bill died in 71, she died in August of 88, that he said to each one of them, good job. You did a good job, good job. And they did a very, very special, special mitzvah. What is a mitzvah? It's not only a commandment, but it's a good deed. And they brought the message to the world. Now, before we leave this paragraph, we wanna talk about one of the failures and that guy was Eddie R. He attended Bob's funeral in 1950 with a year of sobriety, but he just couldn't get sober. And another one, 
married Dr. Bob's daughter, and that was Eddie, another, uh, he, he, he um, married Dr. Bob's daughter, and Dr. Bob said at the time, it's very difficult to give your daughter to somebody whose fourth step, or fifth step, excuse me, you've taken, and, and we have Ernie, Ernie G., he married Dr. Bob's daughter, and then there's, there's two Ernie G's, Ernie G., who married Dr. Bob's daughter, and we have another, er that's Ernie Galbraith, we have another Ernie G., Ernie Gehrig, and that's where you have your ninth step from. And the ninth step says at the end of the step, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I'll very quickly tell you the story. And he was one of the early failures too. I hadn't planned on talking about step nine, but sometimes these Saturday morning sessions kind of go in directions I hadn't planned on. I don't plan these things. I just kind of sit down and do them. But anyway, I want to tell you the story of Ernie Garrick because it's a story worth talking about. And it ties into how small the house was and how modest the house was. So I'm going to tell you the story. Ernie Garrick was an alcoholic and they lived in Ypsilanti, Michigan. How many people here know that Ypsilanti starts with a Y instead of an I? Okay, good. It starts with a Y instead of an I. See my Chicago roots come in handy. Okay, so now... Ernie Gehrig, he's not only an alcoholic, but he's got a lot of girlfriends. Oh boy, does he have a lot of girlfriends. And his wife's getting sick and tired of this. And one day a job opened up he was a machinist and he a job opened up in Toledo, Ohio. And his wife took him by the ear and said, we are going to Toledo, Ohio. You are getting away from all these women up here in Ypsilanti and we are moving to Toledo, Ohio. And in the summer of 1935, they moved to uh, Toledo, Ohio. And in fall of 1935, around September, just as Bill Wilson was leaving the Smith house, Ernie Gehrig's wife hears about a doctor in Akron that's fixing drunks. Well, this is all she has to hear. This doctor can fix a drunk. She grabs him by the ear and off to Akron they go. And they come to Akron. The Gehrigs are in Akron and he gets a job there. It was the height of the depression, but he still got a job. And Bill Wilson left there in 1935 in September. And the Gehrigs came around October of 35. So what happens is he starts dating lots of girls in Akron, Ohio. Well, wherever you go, there you are. So in October of 1935, she's at an Oxford group meeting and she says to one of the women there, the heck with him, I'm getting myself, I got myself a boyfriend. And the woman from the Oxford group says, you didn't. And she said, yes, I did. She said, what's good for the goose is good for the damn gander. And she says, I've got myself a boyfriend. And the woman from the Oxford group in October of 1935 says to her, you better go make amends to Ernie because that is a harm and you've got to go make amends. Well, the next day is Saturday. And if you've ever been in the Midwest on a Saturday afternoon in late October, they are perfect sleeping, napping weather, raining, cold. I love to take a nap on a Saturday afternoon, unless the ducks are on, then I love to take a nap on a Saturday afternoon. But I love college football. So, you know, you have to weigh your options here. Okay. Okay. 
So it's a Saturday afternoon and Bob Smith and his wife, Ann, are out buying groceries and they took the car. <sighs> so it's a Saturday afternoon and uh, she says to Ernie, I've got myself a boyfriend, two can play this game. And he grabs a knife in the, in the Smith kitchen, grabs one of the kitchen knives. And it's a good thing she was a little thing. She was faster than him. He tried to kill her. He's lunging at her with the knife and he's swearing at her. He's screaming at her. He's trying to kill her with the knife. In walks Bob Smith, in walks Ann Smith, and they're running around the house, he with a knife and her running for her life, literally. Bob tries to grab him and he lunges at Bob with the knife. He's blind with rage. It was okay for him to have girlfriends, but it wasn't okay apparently for her to have a boyfriend. And then Ann Smith gets in it and he lunges at Ann with the knife. And Bob says, you guys have to leave right now. You guys have to leave our home now. And they went back and he was put into a hospital, a mental hospital back in Ypsilanti. But the reason that you have in step nine, I don't know how I got on this subject today. The reason that you have in step nine, except when to do so would injure them or others is because of the profound lesson of Ernie Gehrig. Because sometimes making an amends will cause more harm than the original hurt. And sometimes you make an amends. Now this is, I hadn't planned on talking about this. You have to have a sponsor that knows the book, that knows the program. Sometimes the amends you make is just to stop the behavior. You don't tell someone something that's gonna hurt them unless you're absolutely sure they already know about it. If they don't know about it, you simply stop the behavior. Now, Ernie Gehrig will get drunk and sober and drunk and sober throughout the rest of his life. And Ernie Galbraith will marry Dr. Bob's daughter and Ernie will not stay sober for very long at any time. And Susan Smith, Dr. Bob's daughter had a profound resentment against AA because they couldn't keep Ernie sober and they will divorce Ernie and Susan Smith will get divorced and she will marry someone else whose name I can't think of right now. But um, the bottom line is, is that uh, you don't make, you, the reason that we have this thing in the ninth step is because of Ernie Gehrig. And I know how I got on it. He was one of those early failures. He was one of those early failures. All right. A second small group. I'm on page XVII. A second small group promptly took shape at New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third at Cleveland. Now, Clarence Snyder is going to come into the picture in Cleveland. And Clarence is the father of modern day sponsorship. You see, sponsorship was very haphazard before the book came out. And Clarence Snyder in Cleveland, the book came out April the 10th, 1939. 1939, the book comes out. And what he did is he went through the book and he turned the questions into statements and the statements into questions. And that was how he sponsored. And we use the book to, to sponsor today. And it was that Cleveland group 
Clarence Snyder started off in Akron, but he was from Cleveland, but he started off in Akron. Dr. Bob was his sponsor and he got two sponsees. They didn't call them that at that time. They were pigeons because they, they were, they crapped all over and they carried a message. So they called them pigeons or babies at that time. And he says to Dr. Bob, I've got two Roman Catholic sponsees and they don't want to go to the, the, the bishop says they can't go to the Oxford group. I think we really need to break away. And Dr. Bob, he wasn't really willing to break away from the Oxford group yet. Bill had pulled the New York groups out earlier. Bill pulled the New York groups out in 37. But um, he says, well, they weren't such good Catholics when they were drinking. And Clarence said, you know, we really need to break away. This is just a good message. We need to be in our own arena. We need to be in our own situation. And it accelerated. It was the catalyst for breaking away. But in Cleveland, I mean, in Akron, the groups were very upset with Clarence. They, were, they went up to Cleveland and protested the breakaway from the Oxford group. They were very loyal to the Oxford group, but Clarence broke away and it started that chain reaction. And today we are, they are Alcoholics Anonymous, we are Overeaters Anonymous, and we, we are not adjunct members of some other group. Besides these, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron or New York who were trying to form groups in other cities. Now, one of those guys who definitely impacted me was Earl Treat. Earl, he was a drunk and he was from Chicago. And he went down to Akron and he got sober. There was nobody for him to work with in Chicago at that time. And he got down to Akron and he... Uh, got sober and he came back to Chicago. And there was a woman in Evanston, Illinois. Evanston is on the lake. If I ever moved back home, I would love to live in Evanston if I could live along Sheridan Road there. But that's, that's the high rent district. But Evanston is just really exquisite. But she was from Evanston, Illinois. And her name was Sylvia Kaufman. And Sylvia Kaufman got sober in Evanston, Chicago. And they formed groups together. And one of the earliest groups that they formed became the group that met at the Lincoln Park Alano Club over on Armitage, off of Armitage. And uh, I believe it's Sheffield. I've been there a million times and I can't even remember the streets, but I think it's, it's uh, off of uh, Armitage near Sheffield. It's the Lincoln Park Alano Club. And the Lincoln Park Alano Club is a magical, magical place. And they've got great speakers there and they've got great recovery there. And I heard some really good speakers there. I heard some really good stuff there. I heard Wino Joe Leaf there. And I heard a lot of guys uh, just at the Lincoln Park Alano Club. What a magical place. And at 2.15 every Saturday afternoon, they had a meeting where OAs could come and NAs could come and whoever wanted to come could come. And I used to attend that meeting pretty religiously. And then I would go uh, to the Parthenon, which is a Greek restaurant up where I lived in West Rogers Park. We used to go up there. And that's where my sponsor used to poke me in the chest and say, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas yet, kid? Because he'd say, well, you got damn ideas here. Uh, damn it. I, I ain't going to waste my 
effing time with you, but he used the real golf words. He was, he was kind of a big guy and he was kind of intimidating, but we used to go together to that meeting every Saturday. And I learned an awful lot in those meetings. Boy, they were magical. And then you had Archie Throwbridge who founded AA in Detroit, Michigan and Fitz Mayo. He formed a group in Washington, DC and Jimmy Burwell formed a group in Philadelphia and Dave B formed a group in Canada. And all of the English speaking groups in Canada stem from that meeting that Dave B formed in uh, in Canada. And then you had other places where it was forming and other places where it was spreading to. And then eventually it became a national institution and then a worldwide institution that you have today. But you have to remember that it took a lot of blood, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears and a lot of guts to get this thing going. And there have been many, many times when I have sat at meetings with nobody there. I've sat at meetings with one person there just to try to get them going. And service to OA was not always easy. It was not always easy at all, but somebody's got to do it. Why not you? So the bottom line is these guys are gone. They're all at that big meeting in the sky. Clarence Snyder and Archie and Jimmy and, 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 and Sylvia and Earl and all these other people, Fitz Mayo, they're all gone, but there's work yet to be done. And that's why we need you. We need, we're calling upon you. Let's continue. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. Now, in 1937, in up to the summer of 37, the message was often garbled. And what would happen is this. Bill Wilson, he had more sobriety than anybody. Ebby was already drunk. Ebby in the next years would get drunk and sober and drunk and sober and drunk and sober. Little known fact, Bill Wilson actually supported Ebby financially for a long time with money that he got from the book, but that was to come later. Uh, but anyway, the message would, okay, and that now there's Joe or there's Mary or there's whatever, Betty, whoever the heck it was. And they would get sober, so everybody would kind of follow them. But it was haphazard. And it was a, a period of growth in Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the fall of 1937, Bill Wilson proposed to the groups in Akron, not in New York first. He did this in Akron. He was visiting Dr. Bob, and he went to the meeting that night, the Oxford group meeting that night. And he said to the drunk squad of the Oxford group, guys, we need to do three things, three things we need to do. And they said, what are they? And they said, we need to write a book. And the reason that we need to write a book is so that the message cannot be garbled. It can't be changed. It can't be diluted. You know that old game that you played, um, 2100 Sheffield, 
That's where the, sorry about that. That's my, that's my old brain. 2100 Sheffield is the Lincoln Park Allen Oak Club. Okay, got it. Yes, that's Sheffield, one block north of Armitage for those who are going to go there today from Chicago. Okay, anyway, sorry. And my brain is what my brain is. I can't help it. Okay, 1937. He says, we need to write a book. And we also need to start a chain of hospitals. Now, you got to remember that in the 1930s, chain stores were just taking off. You had Sears and you had Walgreens and you had Woolworth and you had Kresge and you had different chain drugstores and different chain stores of various types. Now, when we hear about these alcoholics going into a hospital, I'll let you in on a secret, but you can't tell anyone from 1935 because these guys will get in trouble. So if, you, if we invent time travel and you're listening to this and you have a time machine, don't go back to the 1930s and tell anyone because they'll get in trouble. You couldn't really get an alcoholic into a hospital. You could get him into the town's hospital. You can get him into Bellevue. Yeah, but you couldn't get him into most hospitals. And I'll tell you why. Hospitals didn't want them in there. They wanted their rooms for sick people, people with broken legs, people with liver damage, people with, with lung problems, people with digestive, whatever that might be. They wanted them for sick people, not for alcoholics. Alcoholics did, did something or didn't do two things that the hospitals objected to them not doing. Number one, they didn't seem to get any better. And they would fix these guys up, as I told you, when we're going to talk about that, when we get to the doctor's opinion, they'd fix these guys up and 90% of them would never come back. But that 10% treated the joint as if it had a revolving door. I remember there was two treatment centers in Chicago. There was Raider Institute and there was Parkside. They're both kaput now. But the Raider Institute was at Bethesda Hospital, which is condos now. That's at Howard and Western. And then the uh, park side was at Lutheran General Hospital. Lutheran General is out in the suburbs. It's in Park Ridge for those keeping score at home. And I was there on a Sunday night at Raider Institute. I was the speaker. And we watched a guy, I won't name him because he could easily still be alive. And he might even be on this thing. I have no idea. We watched a guy leave on Sunday night after my talk. He was signed out. He stayed for the meeting and then he left. At Howard and Western, it was a place called Amy Joy Donuts. And Amy Joy Donuts was at the other corner of Howard and Western. And we watched him leave Bethesda Hospital. And without passing go, without stopping for his $200, he went from the door of Bethesda Hospital after spending $28,000 for treatment. $28,000 in 1982, 86, whatever it was, was a lot of money. It's not chump change now. He went from the door of the hospital right to the door of Amy Joy Donuts, and we watched him walk inside, and we were sad. And I realized, as I realized, 
today, I am not the only one that got a fatal case of this disease. See, I used to think that these behaviors of doing something like that, the thoughts that I had were secret unto me and they indeed are not. But anyway, getting back to Bill, he's in Akron. He says, we need a chain of hospitals. And Dr. Bob, he was gonna be in charge of the hospitals. Now, what else do we need? We need a group of missionaries. We need a group of proselytizers. We need a group of people evangelical in nature to go spread the word about Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bill was going to be in charge of the missionaries. And Bob was going to be in charge of the hospitals. And Bill was going to write the book. And they got the stony stare from the group. The group is thinking, what the hell? They says, look. Money is going to ruin this thing. If you guys are in charge of the, of the hospitals and you guys are in charge of the missionaries, we're going to create a professional class. And the last thing we need as alcoholics is a professional class. Does that sound like one of the traditions? God, I hope so. If it doesn't, then I'm not doing my job. Yes, we hire people to do certain things like Ruth Hock was the secretary and Nell Wing was the secretary later on and blah, blah, blah. But they said, this is going to cause a lot of problems. Now, the book, that was something they weren't quite ready to do away with. And they told Bill Wilson, if we're going to write a book, it's not going to be your book. You're going to write it. Yes. But it's going to be our book. We're going to have input in it. And we're going to have the right to change, delete, and rearrange anything that you do. So Bill became a, an umpire of the warring factions. In New York, he goes back. Oh, and they said, you got to raise some money. So he scrammed back to the Big Apple where there was more money than there was in Akron, everybody thought. And he gets the stony stare from everybody that he approaches. Now, Remember I told you when we first started this that we get this impression, it's not 20 to old. Oh my God, oy vey. I'm, I, I gotta stick to my subject here, but anyway, okay. Remember we said that OA or AA, excuse me, wasn't formed by Bill meeting Bob and then AA just sprang out of their ears? Far from it. I'm gonna tell you about Leonard Strong, Dr. Leonard Strong. He was the brother-in-law of Bill Wilson. He was a doctor. Remember in Bill's story, it says, my, uh, my brother-in-law and the kindness of my mother, he was the brother-in-law, Dr. Leonard Strong. And he had an office in a place called Yonkers, New York. And he's up in Yonkers and Bill decides he's got one of his gastric, uh, disturbances of the stomach because he's aggravated because nothing is here. He wants to get this book written. He's got a couple of chapters written. He's got his story written and he's got something that he asked uh, uh, Silkworth to do and he's got some other ideas. Anyway, he says to Leonard, I'm trying to write this book, but we need some money. We need some backing so we can get this thing done. Now, I want you to listen to what Leonard, Dr. Leonard tells Bill Wilson, his brother-in-law, I went to grammar school with a girl and I think she has an uncle that works for the Rockefellers. I knew a girl and I think she has an uncle. 
That's how thin this story. You take out any any link in this chain, and I'm dead. I'm in Waldheim Cemetery in Chicago in a freaking piano case. I'm in Waldheim Cemetery. Okay. Any link. Now, Leonard knew this girl from grammar school, hadn't talked to her since. He says to Bill Wilson, why don't I give the Rockefellers a call, their offices a call, and see if this guy Willard Richardson exists. He calls up into New York, Rockefeller Center, 54th floor, and he says, is there somebody there named Willard Richardson? The next thing he hears is the voice of an old gentleman. Why, Leonard, it's Will Richardson. How have you been? Where have you been keeping all these years? And Willard Richardson invites Leonard Strong and Bill Wilson over to Rockefeller Center to meet with him about the fledgling group called Alcoholics Anonymous and the book that they propose to write. Very, very thin things, very, very simple things that mean the most to the world and that you take out one link and I'm in a cemetery called Waldheim in Chicago, okay? Now, they go to Rockefeller Center, they go and they meet with Willard Richardson and Willard Richardson expresses that he loves this idea of the book, but they wanna check things out. And he says, to, he says, I'm gonna get in touch with Frank Amos. And Frank Amos was the head of, the, uh, of a church and he was a close, they were both close friends with Rockefeller and Rockefeller believed in prohibition. He believed in no liquor at all whatsoever. And it was Frank Amos that tried to get Rockefeller to stop professing it publicly because it was hurting his image with drinkers. Rockefeller was strangely intrigued by this group. And Frank Amos was dispatched out to get some information. But before he went, went and got information, they had a dinner in New York. And Bob Smith came from Akron and came to the dinner. And Bill Wilson was there. And some of the other drunks were there. Hank Parkhurst was there. And then they had their ringer. The guy that they thought could bring it home with Rockefeller, they got Silkworth to come with them. And they believed that if Silkworth could just talk to Rockefeller, it would convince him. The Rockefeller people were not interested in giving them money because Rockefeller said, won't money spoil this thing? And Bill Wilson's thinking to himself, I'd like to spoil you, Mr. Rockefeller. We need money. We were hard up for sure. The mortgage on Smith's house was way behind. The mortgage on the Wilson house was way behind. They were living at 182 Clinton Street at this time, which is another place I suggest that you visit. I've been there. I walked up there and I stood fresh skinned and glowing in the, in the doorway of 182 Clinton Street. And I've got the pictures to prove it. Thank you uh, to the people that we took each other's picture there when we, when we went. But anyway, 
Rockefeller did provide some money, $5,000, but he said, that's it. And they raised the mortgage on Smith's house. They, Bob and Bill shoot up the other couple of thousand pretty quick. And Frank Amos was dispatched out to Akron to check out the new group. And he found out that everything that they had said was true. And Rockefeller never did give them a bunch of money, but the 5,000 that he gave or that he gave them, he was paid back by, by AA later on. He was paid back every cent. And he did provide $30 a week to Bill and Bob later on at a, after a second dinner, he provided $30 a week to each of them, which helped them get on their feet. Because when the book came out, you couldn't give it away. You couldn't give it away. And the book started, let's, let's let the book tell the story because we're gonna hear the story of uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick and uh, Jack Alexander. It was now time the struggling groups thought, I'm at the bottom of XVII, XVII. It was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. And the way that they did it, as in the book, is in the book that you are holding in your hands or looking at. The de this determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939. The book was written in 37 and 38 and published on April the 10th, 1939. There were certain segments of the chapter, A Vision for You, that were written just a few days before they brought the book to the printer. There, there was, they were changing it as, as, as time was going. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. So let's take a look at how slow this was. 1935, June of 35, you've got three people in the world. Two are sober. One unbeknownst to them is drunk, Ebby. Bill and Bob are sober. By 1937, January, you've got 10 people sober, and now you've got about 100. So it's very, very slow. Let's watch how God accelerates the speed and depth of the message, because God knows what he's doing, and he wanted this message to get to you, and he wanted to get this message to me, or I'd be in wall time. The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. The flying blind period ended and AA entered a new phase of its pioneering time. With the appearance of the new book, a great deal began to happen. Dr. Henry, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the noted clergyman reviewed it with approval. In the fall of 1939, Fulton Ausler, then editor of Liberty, printed a piece in his magazine called Alcoholics and God. This brought a rush of 800 frantic inquiries into the little New York office, which meanwhile had been established. Each inquiry was painstakingly answered. Pamphlets and books were sent out. Businessmen traveling out of existing groups were referred to these prospective newcomers. New groups started up and it was found to the astonishment of everyone that AA's message could be transmitted in the mail as well as by word of mouth. By the end of 1939, it was estimated that 800 alcoholics, they're gonna go from 
100 to 800 in the same year were on their way to recovery. Now, this was in the days when magazines were very, very important. There was no television. There was newspaper, radio, and magazines. That was it. I remember when my mother, even when I was a kid, she used to get look and life and time, and she used to get something else, look, life, time, and something else. I don't remember what. It wasn't Playboy, unfortunately, even though I had asked her many times, but no, it wasn't that. But anyway, uh, people would read magazines and that's how they learn things. And that's how, you know, that was how they, they got into these various things. It was very, very important. Continuing on, I'm on page XVIII or 18 in Roman numerals. In the spring of 1940, this is after the book is published, printed, John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave a dinner for many of his friends to which he invited AA members to tell their stories. News of this got on the world wires. Inquiries poured in again. Rockefeller was a very powerful man. He was the richest man in America. And what he did, people wanted to follow. And many, excuse me, and many people went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2,000. So in 1939, you've gone from 100. Now you've gone to 800. Now you've gone to 2,000. See how quickly things are happening. And that's how I know the difference between my will and God's will. When it's my will, obstacles spring up and I have to use my willpower to overcome them and I end up with disastrous results. And then when it's God's will, it's just downhill. I remember when we were here for the Fiesta Bowl football game in 2002, January the 1st, 2002, me, my wife and daughter were here in Arizona for the Fiesta Bowl football game. And we were so we were so enamored with how everybody just loved on us and we could love on them. Cause I've got, this is like Chicago West out here for the love of God. Scottsdale is like the westernmost suburb of Chicago. I have shirts that say Mather high school. That's where I went to high school. When I wear my Mather shirts, I always get comments everywhere I go. Hey, I went to Mather. Hey, I went to Sen. Hey, I went to Sullivan. I went to Taft. I went to Lane all the time, all the time. This is like a Western suburb of Chicago. And when we were thinking of moving down here, we put a for sale sign by owner in front of our house in Eugene, Oregon. And we said, bless it or block it. Within seven days of putting that sign up, we sold our home in Eugene for full price. So we knew we were on our way to Arizona and we've, I, we've been here. I mean, we're not together anymore. We're not married anymore. Um, but we're, we're both still here. Me and my ex-wife both still live in Scottsdale. And uh, it's a lot warmer today here than it is back in Chicago, I can tell you that. All right. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2000. Then Jack Alexander wrote a feature article in the Saturday Evening Post and placed such a compelling picture of AA before the general public that alcoholics in need of help really deluged us by the close of 1941, AA numbered 8,000 members. The mushrooming process was in full swing 
AA had become a national institution. Now, the name Jack Alexander may mean nothing to you, but Jack Alexander was like Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. He wasn't a reporter. He was an investigative reporter. And he didn't investigate AA to find out what was right with it. He investigated AA to find out what was wrong with it. Was it a cult? Was it a crook? Was it a scam? Were people taking money? What's going on? What's the story? And he goes out to Akron and he checks it out and he goes to New York and he checks it out and he finds that there's no scam. There's no cult. There's nothing but good people who happen to be afflicted with a permanent progressive and fatal disease that there are no dues or fees for membership. That if you don't want to give seventh tradition, you don't have to. There was no traditions at that time, but it was past the hat. If you don't want to give money, you don't have to. And you can stay here till kingdom come. And you can drink the lousy coffee. And you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want, as long as it's your three minutes, whatever it is. And you don't have to abide by anybody's regulations. And he painted such a compelling picture that people deluged them because when they see the name Jack Alexander, they knew that they were gonna get the dirt on some company or some organization. And when he painted such a beautiful picture of what AA was, it was shocking to some people and they went and they bought the book and they came to meetings and people were getting the help that they needed. World War II was raging, but each and every one of us, we had our own war, didn't we? And the only way we're gonna win this war is with God's help because we're not gonna be able to do this on our own. And what does it say in the book? You have an illness which only a spiritual awakening will conquer. None of us, there's 122 of us, none of us is going to conquer this disease on our own by ourselves, even though our egos want us to. This is a disease which needs other people. And why, do, why does God make it so that we need other people? To diminish the demonic ego. The ego is destructive, but in letting other people in and being of real help to other people, it brings us closer to God, closer to our fellow person, fellow human being, and puts more distance between me and a French fry than was there before, and less distance between me and God. If God has moved in your life, <sighs> If God doesn't seem like he's right there for you, reach out for one of his children. Reach out for one of his children. They're all around you. And when you reach out for one of his children, you will find that miracles will happen. You are not meant to live or recover in isolation. What do they do even in prison? What do they do when somebody needs to be punished? They put that person in isolation. 
It's an unnatural state of being. And we become isolators because our ego and our disease wants us isolated. Remember that the disease is a masterful abuser. And what does an abuser do? What does an abuser do? What's the first step in the abuser handbook? The abuser will isolate you from the support that you desperately need. And once it has you isolated from friends and family and fellowship, now it owns you. God knows this. And one of the things that's most beautiful about this program is how it includes people. I am an isolator by my nature. I'm scared of people, especially pretty girls. They scare the crap out of me. They use the F word like friend. And they tell me they think of me as a brother or a cousin or an uncle. You just want to wretch. You just want to vomit. You know, if I hear that again, it's like, Ugh. but anyway, it puts me in touch with people. We need people. What's that song? People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Boy, they really knew their stuff. Okay. I said to you when we did the forwards that there's a lot of history. When we get to Bill's story, when we get to the doctor's opinion, this is the part of the book where we go the slowest. And I can't really speed it up because I don't want to lay up there on my, in my bed tonight and say, man, I wish I had a date today. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Man, I wish I had explained that to him or wish I had said that to him or whatever. But the bottom line is there's a lot of history here. And I'm hoping that it will enhance your appreciation for what we're going through here. So you can sort of understand where we're coming from. We come from pain. We come from sorrow. All right. Before I turn it back over to Maria, I'm just going to remind you, register for the birthday. OABirthday.com or Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous. Register for the OA birthday, January 14th, 15th, and 16th. No math questions. No food questions. And if you asked a question last week, step back and let someone who didn't come forward. And uh, Maria, take Harlan. it away. Thank you, Harlan. Thanks a million, Harlan. If you'd like to ask a question, could you please raise your hand electronically? And we will go down the list of raised hands. Please unmute your microphone when you ask your question to Harlan. And when asking your question, please state your name, the first initial of your last name, and the country you are calling from. And we ask that you keep your questions as short and as concise as possible. And also, as Harlan says, please note that Harlan will not ask answer questions about food or maths. Um, and if you, as he said, if you've asked a question last week, please do hold back to give others an opportunity to ask a question. To raise your hand, you go to the reactions button at the end of your screen, press that, and then press the raise hand button. So I'm gonna go, now go over to Sue L, who's gonna host our Q&A today. Hi, Sue. Hi, Maria, thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Uh, 